Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist and a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist and run my own training nutrition business and teach for Globe University. And this morning we have Jason uh, Koliva with us. Jason, maybe just describe yourself briefly. Sure. I am an exercise physiologist. Um, I'm a power lifter, and I do some coaching on the side. Cool. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm coming to you from a coffee shop this morning, so we're going to be a little spotty with the uh, audio quality and whatnot. But I still wanted to get through a little bit of news, uh, and then we'll get to um, – Jason and his origin stories and that sort of thing before the break. Uh, after the break, we'll probably talk about uh, his research. Strength and muscle sport news. Uh, but this is one for all of us, actually. I got a very complex uh, question from a listener. He's a muscle physiologist, uh, a doctoral level muscle physiologist, but he has a question that's tough. And uh, I promised him that I would bring it up to a couple of experts on the show. So... Let me uh, read the email. Yeah, I'll read the email briefly to you. Uh, and keep in mind that we don't have to sugarcoat or dumb this down because this guy is, his name is Yodam. Uh, he is on the ball. So this is the fairly advanced situation. Uh, let's see. I am 26 years old, male. He's 89 kilograms, so that's what, in the mid-190s in pounds. Um, I've started lifting weights approximately 10 years ago. A little more than four years ago, I moved to London in the UK from Israel to study physiology. About a year later, I injured my right hamstring, and after months of not training, I had accumulated fat and lost definition. So I decided to go on a low-carb diet. I increased the protein and fats to reach uh, caloric consumption about 20% below my estimated uh, metabolic rate. The problem was that exams came along, and I found it difficult to maintain the diet, Uh, I ended up only having about 1,500 calories on a good day. Probably about 1,000 calories is all on a bad day. This went on for some time throughout the rest of my degree until last summer. uh, I went back home. It was the first time in a long time. You know, he had been back in Israel and, you know, eating a lot more uh, than he was in London. And he realized he was accumulating fat very quickly. Uh, I was hoping my metabolism would match my consumption. But after a while, I realized it, uh, I didn't think it did. I even did morning walks every day for about an hour, and no matter what I did, I still felt like I was getting fatter. So when I came back to London to start my doctorate, um, I decided that I needed to put my diet back on track. I started checking how many calories I was eating for fat loss, about 1,800 calories per day. Uh, the problem is I am gaining fat on a fat loss diet. So if I was going to call this case example give it a title, that's what I would call it, gaining fat on a fat loss diet. Um, So now I am completely confused. I'm not sure if my metabolism will match my caloric consumption at all or if I should go up gradually in calories. 
Uh, I don't mind gaining a few extra pounds if that means it's going to fix my metabolism. So it almost sounds like one of those cases of metabolic damage that you hear about, you know. It says, but the way it seems now, uh, I'm gaining fat on a fat loss diet. Normally, I know what to do when these sorts of problems arise. I'm a PhD researcher in muscle physiology and a personal trainer. And back in Israel, I was a gym owner or gym manager. Um, I always take control of my life and my injuries, and I ensure everything is back on track as, as well as possible. But in this case, I am completely lost. So the question sort of is, uh, I decided to ask for your help. Am I even on the right track? Uh, trying to up the calories. He says, I have no clue. I took my temperature today, three hours upon waking, and it was 36 degrees C. To me, that sounds quite low, but uh, you know, I might be wrong. I'm not sure how else to monitor my metabolism or if I even should. And maybe to you all, the issue is already clear. So thanks for that um, lengthy case example here. But what do you think? It sounds like he was eating a very low-calorie diet, uh, and now he's gaining fat on a fat loss diet. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, <clears throat> all sorts of stuff there. I appreciate all the, the awesome detail, which is very good because a lot of times you get very little detail and it's like, yeah, I'm fat. Help me lose fat. What do I do? <laughs> right. um, but yeah, it sounds like my uh, very typical grad student experience for a lot of people, which paradoxically happens even in the exercise physiology department. Um, there are a couple of things that, there is some literature to show that if you're on a very, very low-carbohydrate diet for long periods of time, that your body doesn't treat carbohydrates as well for energy and that type of thing. That's not to say that calories don't matter, but I've worked with a few people now who were doing more CrossFit-type stuff, and we had to very slowly increase their carbohydrates because they just didn't tolerate them very well. And their mm-hmm. performance, obviously, was not very good with, without them doing that type of exercise. Um, the other thing, too, is that when you're under high amounts of stress, if I can with people, I like to have them eat as many carbs as they can. You know, obviously, their performance and body composition still matters. So I usually will try to shift them over time to a little bit lower fat, um, higher carbohydrate. I just find that that tends to work better. <laughs> if you look at basic physiology, we know that as you're stressed, your body's going to shift to use carbs, right? So if you're running from the bear, you're going to try to shift to use carbohydrates. So in your experiences, if you pull those out and you're really, really low on carbs, it just doesn't go so well. Um, And also he mentioned that when he ate more, um, his metabolism didn't seem to, you know, come up. So he may not regulate the NEAT as well. So non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Um, that's based on the sort of classic study Levine did at the Mayo and where they dramatically like overfed these subjects by like a thousand calories per day. A couple mm-hmm. of them gained massive amounts of weight and then a couple of them, the other extreme only gained a couple pounds. So they found that uh, <clears throat> people who did not gain as much weight, they in essence sort of subconsciously fidgeted away. They moved more. They just started adding more movement. So I would, if it was my client, I would have him slowly increase his uh, dietary incoming amounts over time. And then, because even if his, he said he was on 1,800 calories, it sounds like he was on 1,500 calories before, and if he's still not losing, at some point you're going to run out of room, right? What are you going to be doing, like eating 800 calories a day for, you know, weeks on end? Right, yeah. 
So I would have him slowly kind of go up over time. He's probably going to have to go relatively slow because his neat doesn't seem to upregulate that well. Um, obviously, the weight training, that type of thing. And then once he's up there for a while, then I would have him probably slowly come back down again. You know, my thoughts on this just quickly are, um, first of all, if he's a muscle physiologist, he may be able to check in a local department there at the university and, you know, get his BMR checked. Yeah, or metabolic uh, heart data, too. Yeah. Uh, if if it seems low or they get sort of non-conclusive information, I start thinking that, you know, the endocrine system just has such a huge impact. So maybe he's lower thyroid. I mean, that would show up with lower metabolic rate, but, you know, his BMR being low. But uh, I would look into things like a thyroid panel, um, you know, testosterone. Is he low T? You know, there's several different things that really confound the energy balance picture, you know, or like you were alluding to, Mike, like uh, insulin resistance, you know what I mean? Because you could have normal metabolic rate, but if your <clears throat> excuse me, if your fuel mix is off, yep. you know what I mean? Then it's going to be very frustrating. So my suggestion would be, you know, get your BMR checked, get a thyroid panel, maybe some type of um, you know hormone panel in general done. It'd be very interesting to see what your baseline like insulin levels were like, that sort of thing. So just trying to throw out some possibilities, you know, actionable things that he might be able to do, especially because. He's a physiologist, and he may have access to things like metabolic carts that the average person just does not. Yeah. You know, but uh, Jason, what about you? Uh, that was a convoluted, uh, long sort of case example, but what do you think? Um, I, I, I agree with you regarding getting some blood work done to, to get a better picture of what is occurring. My question is, anytime I encounter something like this, um, kind of go along with the measurements. Like how is he monitoring body fat percentage or gaining body fat versus losing muscle and so on and so forth? Is it actually happening? Is it in his head? Not so much that he's gaining fat, but to what degree? The second questions come as far as how is he monitoring his caloric consumption and his macronutrients? And how did he figure out how many that, that he needs? If you look at people who actually start tracking what they're eating and using an online tracker or some sort of nutrition uh, data software, it turns out that these numbers can be quite off what they think they're actually consuming. So that, that's my second question. Um, and what does his yeah. macronutrients look like? Right. Um, being a doctoral muscle physiologist i'm i'm hoping he has some understanding of the you know measurement limitations i guess um but you know like you said blood work is going to be really objective information and it's a good point i mean he could be uh if he's not very meticulous he could be entering data you know portion sizes and things like that that don't really mesh with the database you know what i mean like you might see in a database one bagel and it's about the size of a 50-cent piece here in the States. You know what I mean? And, and your bagel's the size of a, a spare tire, <laughs> you, know? So, you know? So there's definitely some inaccuracies, I think, with that sort of, yeah. sort of thing. But it's also a good point, too, right? The body comp, however he's measuring body composition, you know, with a plus or minus, let's say, 3 or 4% slop, you know, in a lot of those estimation techniques... Yeah, it, it may seem more severe to him emotionally than it than it is actually physically. 
But I don't want to automatically assume that either, you know, so. No, um, assuming that, assuming that the numbers he gave are, you know, that his, uh, his observations are accurate and correct, then I would say some, some tracking needs to, to be done to find exactly what his current real maintenance caloric level is at. And it might take some time and, and some, you know, trial and error. But once he figures that out, then he can start slowly increasing his consumption. Yeah, you know, I think both of you guys, <coughs> we're hitting on a good point here that it's really hard to control what you don't measure. Yeah. You know, I think if you're going, whether it's a clinical setting or a benchtop science setting, you've got to get the most accurate measurements, looking as many different variables that could be interacting as possible. And it's not easy, but you really have to get accurate information, whether it's blood work or caloric values, your macros, all that sort of stuff. So um, I guess, yeah, just as he's probably want to do, just think like a scientist, measure what you can, you know, and try not to let the emotions get in on it too much, you know, or personal perceptions that might be off. You know, sometimes we have to trust our equipment even beyond our, what our senses seem to tell us, you know, so... Uh, well, I hope that helps you, Yotam. Uh, it's a complex issue, you know, and it's, it's a tough issue. Like I said, there's so many words that fly around the Internet about metabolic damage and, you know, all this sort of thing. But I try not to use phrases like that too much because, it, you know, there's something going on. Is it hypothyroidism? Is it hypotestosteronism? You know, there's something. Or is it insulin resistance? Uh, because metabolic damage is such a general term uh, I get what people mean by that, but you know, I think a clinician would try to assign something more specific. I think you metabolic know. adaptation is probably a better word, because you know, like you said, damage makes it sound like it's irreparable, like it's oh, it's gone now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Okay. Well, um, thank you for your patience, Jason. If you can, um, before we go to break here, we got several minutes. Why don't you um, just share with listeners what you do and how you got started? Okay. I am assistant professor of exercise science at Coastal Carolina University. We're a middle-sized school um, right around Myrtle Beach in South Carolina. That's my current position. Um, some of the work I do there, as far as teaching goes, I teach sport nutrition, exercise physiology, and advanced personal training. And my research there has been focused on nutrition education, nutrition monitoring, and changes in body composition in Division One athletes. Um, so we've been kind of using a flexible diet program to, to try and improve performance. We've seen some pretty cool things that I'll talk about, I think, later in the show, right? Sure, yeah. All yep. right, cool. Um, before that, I was a a graduate student at Springfield College in Massachusetts, and I was studying ergogenic aids and uh, resistance training adaptation. That was my dissertation, specifically betaine. Way before that, I was a communications major at the University of Rhode Island. <laughs> um, that's kind of where I got my, my start into, into bodybuilding and everything else, is I wanted to be a professional bodybuilder, and I didn't want to do any schoolwork. As you can imagine, it didn't work out all that well. Um, <laughs> so I graduated with a communications degree, and uh, I got out, and I was in sales. I sold home theater for a little while, and then I became a mortgage broker. 
And all that time, I just I kind of hated my job. I didn't really enjoy sales. I didn't really enjoy finance. And all I wanted to do was work out and eat and talk to people about working out and eating. <laughs> Sounds familiar. And, yeah. 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 <laughs> and so, so one day I just, I just decided that I've had enough and I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And I really just want to lift weights and eat and talk about it for the rest of my life. So I decided to become a personal trainer. And I got certified. I got my CSCS. And I started training people, and I realized that I don't really know all that much. Like, I'm a certified personal trainer. I have a, a CSCS, but I, don't, I still don't feel confident in, in my abilities to do a really good job. And so I went back to school, and I went to a small liberal arts college you know, where I lived and started taking some classes non-matriculating to learn more. I took some exercise science courses, some anatomy and physiology courses. And whereas in undergrad at URI, I was lucky if I got a C in a course, I was just eating this up and getting A's without, I don't want to say without a lot of effort, but without feeling like I was toiling to do so. And so that's kind of what drove me to go back to school and to learn more and get my master's and eventually my doctorate was fact i love the science behind it so you know jason if i if i can ask you then i mean mike's you know sort of grinning i think because you know <laughs> this is a this is a pretty common story you know and i think it really shatters a lot of myths about you know people that are involved in bodybuilding not maybe not being intellectuals and that sort of thing you know I mean, we've had such a host of professors and whatnot on the show first of all good on you for you know, when you're at that sort of personal trainer level, you're like, there's more to learn because I think there's so many people in the fitness world that they think they have such a great beat on things and they don't realize I mean, you can get doctorates in these things. You know what I One mean? One little tiny area. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> but so I've actually spoken to some guys before that are very prominent in the fitness community and they, um, they strongly argue that uh, doctorate is superfluous or even graduate training is superfluous when it comes to personal training. I'm guessing you disagree with that. Spent a few years just to, to prove that I had what it takes to get into school and do it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I said, I didn't have my, my, my undergraduate GPA was, was terrible. Um, and it wasn't really science-based either. But, you know, I think with that in mind, I try to convey to my students that their degree, and we just do undergraduate degrees here. We don't we don't have a master's program yet. I try to convey to them that their bachelor's degree and their certifications are a really good start, but it shouldn't be an end all. It shouldn't be the end game. And really, if they want to be a real good personal trainer, it's all about that continuing education, however they mm -hmm. choose to get it, whether they're doing online uh, online training or online education or they're going to conferences or workshops or whatever the case is. If they really mm -hmm. want to be a good personal trainer and set themselves apart from, your, I don't know, for lack of a better term, meathead personal trainers or, or fitness chick personal trainers, if they want to set themselves apart, if they really want to do a, be great at their jobs, they need to continue their education and they need to seek new knowledge and new skills. And there's a number of ways to do that. 
there are online seminars, there's conferences, there's workshops. Right. You know, on top of that, I mean, I don't want to sound elitist, but, but again, when I was in this conversation, it was a couple of years ago, and he's been a guest on Iron Radio, but he was just a strong believer that you didn't need any kind of graduate training, that it was a waste and, and this and that. And I think it's easy for someone to think that, you know, further collegiate training doesn't matter if you don't really know. Like, how can you know until you go see see it, you know what I mean, and, and get an idea about the depth that you can study things like metabolism or anatomy, physiology, you know, all these sorts of things. But at the same time, uh, we're a big believer, I think, on the podcast that you can experientially learn a whole lot. You know, when it comes to things like strength coaching, no textbook is going to give you that. You have to spend years, you know, under the right kinds of people, you know, picking up on their, their techniques and that kind of stuff. So I think there's a huge experiential side to that, too. I love what you're saying about workshops and conferences and lifelong learning, because that's really, that's the point, you know. But I think so often, like, you, you Google, you know, fitness or look around YouTube for fitness experts. And uh, Jillian I, Michaels I, comes up. I've done it. It <laughs> right. drives me crazy. And, and I, I think if you add up the amount of time I spend each semester talking about not just Jillian Michaels, but the likes of her, and, and who we see as, who the, the populace or the lay population looks up to and considers fitness experts compared to, like, the, the credentials and the reasoning and the experience of, of people who, I hate the term expert, I don't ever want to be called an expert, but people who Thank should you. be yep. looked up to. In, in the fitness yeah. industry. There's a huge disparity. So, yeah. But yeah, even, I hear you. I, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, was just gonna say uh, I often say that. I'm very much on the same page with you, Jason. The whole idea of, you know, I've been to conferences where, you know, they'll have a personal trainer speak or something. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's fantastic. But, you know, when I hear the, uh, someone say, our next expert is going to expertly share their expertise on being an expert, you know, <laughs> That sits badly with me because I've, I've had the privilege to be around some world-class researchers in the lab, and they would never call themselves an expert. You know, it's almost a red flag, I think, when you see someone self-describing as world-renowned expert. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, funny part I agree that, with you. too, as you guys know, is that you're in the fitness world, you're dealing with people a lot of times who may not have an advanced degree. So if you have an advanced degree, you're kind of sort of, quote, unquote, an expert in that area. It's it's almost like this sort of fighting for airspace type thing, you know, of and I think it's confusing for the consumers who are like, well, I don't know, Jillian Michaels, she must be an expert in fitness. She's everywhere, you know, and at the end of the day, I think that's just uh, sort of a disservice, obviously. Well, I can tell you, even even from a podcast perspective, you know, we have we have all, dozens of PhDs and professional powerlifters, and you know, all this sort of stuff going on. And uh, we are tiny compared to the half a dozen Jillian Michaels podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, both in number and in listenership. You know, it's it's ridiculous. But I'm sorry, Jason. What were you about to say? With regards to the advanced degrees and uh, and and expertise, yeah, I think. I was going to talk about how specialized they are. And just because you have an advanced degree doesn't mean you can be giving 
in-depth advice or in-depth speaking on every aspect of fitness. For example, I have a PhD in exercise physiology, but when it comes to things like cardiac rehab and cardiovascular physiology, I'm confident that I can teach undergrads, but I definitely can't speak in any sort of depth about it. That's just not what my training is in. Mm-hmm. And, and you have some people who leverage that that masters of science or masters of arts in whatever genre in the fitness field they got it in, they leverage it to be an expert in everything. And that's an issue too because now you're talking from a position of authority and Mm -hmm. you are giving out advice and information that you really have no right to, to do so because it's not something you fully understand and it might not be factual and it might get people hurt. Yeah. No, that's a good point. I mean, I think a lot of people, once you're, um, you go all the way through school, you, you can't help but specialize in something. You know, you get a sort of a line of research and you get interested in something. And yeah, and I think a lot of times the more of a, you know, the fitness, the YouTube fitness experts, they're going to be, speak from a position of authority, whether they've earned it or not on everything. You know, and I mean, I'm sure we'll hear about your research in just a minute here, but I mean, you know, are you an expert in in what you know nutrition and metabolism is it muscle recovery is it fat loss you know there are a dozen biomechanics strength training you know what i mean there's just an enormous amount of uh different specialties fitness is so broad you know so all right fellas well let's let's go to break here and uh when we come back we'll ask dr chaliva about uh his research Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lonman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, Whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. (laughs) 
Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to Iron Radio. Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with Dr. Lonnie Lowry. Our guest today is Dr. Jason Coldiva, a.k.a. Dr. Red, as the students call him. And he's going to enlighten us about a study he's looking at with some D1 athletes in body composition um, using flexible dieting. So what, what made you study that particular area, or how did the study come about? We have a pretty cool and pretty unique um, opportunity at Coastal where the athletics contacted our department and we set up a meeting with myself and a few other professors with athletics and and the strength and conditioning team to talk about how we could enhance the development of the athletes on a whole that we have at Coastal Carolina. Um, As I said earlier in the show, we are a mid-major university of about just under 10,000 students. Um, so we don't have a ton of resources to develop athletes compared to, say, the University of South Carolina or Clemson or, or a big school like Ohio State. So anyways, they, they came to us, and we had a little meeting in the consortium, and, and we decided to set up a high-performance model where we would actually start tracking athlete development, um, start taking some metrics of, of performance and power and strength, and, and body composition to more individualize the training based upon what the athletes need rather than setting them up by training experience or or even less optimal class freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, so on and so forth. Anyhow, the my role in this and what I thought that I can contribute the most was via nutrition. You'd be surprised, maybe you guys wouldn't be, but <laughs> some listeners might be surprised to realize that a lot of a lot of collegiate athletes don't know all that much about nutrition. Mm-hmm. And you ask them what is healthy. Healthy is a bad term, but you know, you ask them about about nutrition and what they need and everything else, and there is so much misinformation out there. Um, and some just don't care yet. They've always relied on, on their genetics and, and being a superior athlete. And when you get to that next level, everyone has that genetic uh, endowment. And so it's not enough. So that was my role. And the study that we set up was we wanted to look at the effects of nutrition education on bioposition and ultimately performance. So we split them up into, we didn't split them up, but I got the baseball team to work with first, and a little over, about two-thirds of the team agreed to participate in the study, and the other, the other third just served as controls. Um, so what we did, without going into too much detail, is we did a nutrition education intervention, 
and we measure body composition and baseball-specific performance pre and post. This was for the fall semester. And we came up with some pretty cool, or some pretty great results, actually. Um, in working with them, with these teams, one thing that I learned myself is that it's not just education about the macronutrients and how much you need and what types of foods to consume to get them. Uh, but these guys are in training in one shape or another for nearly 30 hours a week. Mm. I don't think some people realize what it's like and, and what the time dedication is to be uh, a collegiate athlete, a division, you know, a high-level college athlete. Um, and this is in the off season. Fall is, you know, baseball is a spring sport. And so, after we educated them on on macronutrient needs and importance and hydration, um, eating a wide variety of foods and all that other good stuff, it came down to setting up strategies to actually get this food in their bodies. Um, and so, meal preparation. Uh, meal storage, things like that, and so that was that was a new experience for me. It was was coming up with these strategies and, and talking with my uh, my interns at the time of of how to make that work. Uh, you know, Jason, uh, this is reminiscent of something I dealt with. Uh, I found myself as the uh, sports nutritionist for a big D one school, and I, I couldn't agree with you more that so much of this is not just imparting knowledge but how do you overcome barriers you know a lot of these guys they lived in an urban food desert you know they didn't have transportation or grocery stores mm -hmm. and i was left like how do you create actionable plans they don't have any skills in the kitchen you know what i mean they've lived at mcdonald's three meals a day since they were probably little kids you know and um we were doing all kinds of things trying to set up bus routes to the grocery store and next town over you know i mean it could be a real challenge just to you know what I mean? Not just impart knowledge, but to try to actually provide actionable advice, don't you think? Yeah, that was definitely the biggest challenge. Um, the people who volunteered, the athletes that volunteered for the uh, for the study, they were they were a great group. Um, they were very competitive and hungry to learn and attentive and, and everything you could ask for. Um, but it just came down to, like you said. Um, converting it to action we actually so they were building a brand new baseball stadium and so by the time the, the group of athletes got back to campus the dining hall was about to sh shut down and all they would leave out was things like hot dogs or they close down the hot food station the pasta station um, all these things that we want the athletes to try and eat to, to provide their their body with the nutrients to recover weren't available and, and so we, we actually had to go to the, the dining hall and, and talk to some of the uh the people in there about about leaving these stations open longer and what days of the week to leave them open longer so the athletes would come in and get properly fed right yeah uh I, you know i've played with things in the past about trying to depending on where an athlete eats is if you can work with the food service side, I never liked that part of my, you know, training for my dietetics license, but to be honest, but the truth is it does come into play a little bit when you're trying to label, like 
color systems like you know green foods or go mm-hmm. foods go eat these you know uh, red foods might be for dieting or yellow foods are for performance pre-workout you know and you know that kind of thing i guess but and you know what let me offer a tip because a lot of our listeners of course are just they're independent weightlifters you know what i mean and so they're into bodybuilding and and powerlifting like that and it, it, some of them are still in a collegiate setting maybe they're they're stuck in situations like you're talking about where Hot dogs are more available than some kind of properly balanced nutrition offering, you know. But one of the things that I think you can do, guys that are listening, is um, portable foods. I'm just such a huge fan of it. Sometimes programs will provide them. Uh, if you're not part of some a big sports team, you can do this yourself. You can put a box of, you know, you're trying to gain weight, put a box of some sort of healthier cereal between your car seats, you know, so you can munch on that during the day or uh, granola with dried fruit and that kind of stuff, you know, mixed nuts. There's there's a lot of things that you can carry with you so you don't fall into that situation, you know, like Dr. Chaliva is talking about, whether it's a collegiate athlete or or not. And that's where you're victim of your environment, maybe. I don't know. Is that fair to say that, Jason, that some of these guys, without your help or planning, they might be a victim of their nutritional environment? Yeah, I, I guess I guess we could uh, we could put it like that. Sure. Here, when I was at Springfield College, I used to eat in the dining hall a lot. A lot of times, they have healthy food or good food options, and you can make it. You, know, you can make your nutrition work if you if you work at it. And so that's one of the things that we were trying to instill upon these athletes. And in the next study with the next group of athletes, we're going to instill upon upon them is the types of foods they have to consume, and we broke it down into into starches, proteins, vegetables, and broke it down further, for example, into, say, you know, consume four cups of, uh, of starch per day, and we gave exchanges of what a potato could stand for, consume three portions of lean meats per day and two portions of dairy and, and portions of this. And so the idea was that armed with this knowledge and this cheat sheet, you could go into wherever you were eating at and kind of check it off as the day went on. Yeah, you know, and I do agree with you. I mean, it's not like you have to be handheld and told exactly what to eat because every cafeteria is selling nothing but deep fried foods. You know, what, one of my concerns is a lot of athletes, like you said, especially if they're not, they're not in a study or they're not being educated in some way, that they're going to go for the fries you know, or the pizza or whatever it might be, as opposed to trying to get in some fruits and vegetables. You know, I've worked with a lot of collegiate athletes. They, you know, you look at their diet records and there's there's not a single fruit or vegetable in their diet record. You know, it's just like enti- entirely deep fried food, you know, and, and beer maybe, you know, and to, to get them to understand that, you know, nutrition, they might only be on the practice field. Let's say they're on the practice field or the weight room two and a half hours a day. That's still only 10% of their day. 90% of their training day, you know, is trying to fuel all that, repair, grow, you know. And so you're, I often would say to them stuff like, you know, a training program for a collegiate sport, and this is true for weightlifters and bodybuilders too, but it's only about 10% roughly the training part, but 90% of your training program is actually the eating and recovery. You know, there's much more time during the day that you're left to try to, you know, refuel, repair, recover. 
And uh, so often, I think, uh, those athletes, even though they're performing at such a high level, they're just left to, you know, with vague advice, like try to eat well, eat a balanced diet, you know. And I don't know. In the weight room, you've got a coach, you know, patting you on the back. Hey, good job. But you don't have that when you're just out walking around campus during the day. You know what I mean? And the nutrition is so important, but it's, so many schools don't have a dedicated nutrition staff. You know, to help them sure. with that other ninety percent. Sure, that's uh, that's actually the follow up is to so this we just we measured nutritional intake pre and post, um, and the follow up study to this with the next set of athletes that we work with, we are going to start measuring nutritional intake on a, a weekly or a biweekly basis and crunch the numbers right away and provide feedback. Hmm. Yeah, that's would you good. expect that, that would be better? I would, I would think so. I, you know, I haven't compared, uh, I haven't looked at the nutritional needs compared to the nutritional intake yet on this study. Um, but on average, the guys in the uh, the intervention group had some pretty sweet results. Uh, they lost, let's see, on average, they lost one uh, percent body fat gained three and a half pounds of muscle and lost about a little over almost a pound and a half of body fat over the course of a fall semester. And what we saw that was really interesting is I don't have stats on it yet, but just from an eye test, the the greater the improvements in body composition, the greater the improvements in uh, in a lot of these speed and power numbers. Hmm. Uh, such as the pro agility, the vertical, the broad, the 60-yard dash, the 10-yard dash. So it's going to be interesting to compare. And, and right now all I have on the control group is, uh, is body comp. Um, but while the, the con, you know, both groups look to gain a very similar amount of muscle, um, the changes in body fat were dramatically different for, for the treatment group. Hmm. Well, it's... You know, I've often said it's hard to control what you don't measure. I, I'm just glad that these guys will, they seem to be responding then to the feedback that you're providing, right? Or at least the, the dietary advice. Yeah, the education, they, um, you know, they, they ate it up. It was, uh, they had really good questions and, and some of the questions, as I alluded to earlier, were in regards to how do we make this work? And the fact that they were thinking about that is Yeah, like, that's good. Um, rather than just in one ear or out the other, just, you know, thinking yeah. about, you know, the fact that they were thinking about how to apply it was, you can't ask for much more than that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when we when we start getting nutritional journals weekly or biweekly and, and crunching the numbers and giving them, you know, whatever sort of feedback uh, is planned. Right. Yeah, it's nice to see them make connections, I guess, you know, to me. And you know what? I think a lot of our audience, uh, being on the heavy resistance training side, um, regardless of how much they value specific diet, I mean, I think the bodybuilder listeners are, you know, probably more strict and a little bit more calculating on the on the nutrition side. I don't want to pigeonhole the powerlifters as just power eaters all the time, but... <laughs> But the point the point is, you know, it's nice to hear that they're responding to that because it's always blown me away with collegiate athletes, NCAA athletes, that they they think they can build new bodies and new abilities without the right fuel and building blocks. 
you know, and like you said, even though they might be genetically gifted, and even if you think the average person's a chump compared to you, wouldn't you be better pouring the right fuel and the right building blocks into your superior machine, you know? So uh, that's a big thing with me has always been to, uh, and again, I, you may disagree, but, you know, try to get that acknowledgement, I guess, that you've got to value the fuel and the building blocks. How can you build a new you without, you know, some kind of plan for the fuel and the building blocks? Exactly. And you know, one thing that we, that we talked about, we looked at is the decrements in performance with uh, or force output with, with dehydration or with inadequate glycogen stores. And we tried to relate that to what it would mean during a baseball game. Nice. Um, yep. And so that kind of really took hold. And with one of the other teams that I was working with, they had an incredible season. And, and they, they made it to the postseason for the first time in several years. And they actually looked like they were going to, um, to have a huge upset over a, a very, very highly national ranked team. And in the past, or in, in the final 10 minutes of the game, uh, like their performance just, it just waned and the other team just ramped up. And so it was kind of cool to bring that out and say, look, this is what you're eating this is what you should be eating, and this is probably how it affected you so that you didn't upset the number one team for the first time in the history of the NCAA. Mm-hmm. No, good point. Yeah, translate that, right? Because you, you, would, you would think that a lot of this would be second half or late game, you know, like things like glycogen depletion or, you know, that kind of stuff would really catch up with them, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. It's cool. Yeah. Well, okay, fellas, any, uh, any last thoughts or take-home messages um, from your research maybe our listeners could uh, apply to themselves? Sure. Um, so I, I was a bodybuilder for years and training for a bodybuilder, and I was very much anal about what I ate and what I consumed and everything else. So I think from that side of things, looking at the effects that, were, that we had here, I think loosen up a little bit and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, don't, don't allow food to become an obsession and what you eat to become an obsession. Um, food is good for you. Food is fuel. Enjoy it. That's my big take home. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, there's that fine line, isn't there, between getting the fuel in the building blocks you need to build a new body and then not obsessing over that. There's, you know? Yeah. You can make some pretty good changes while still, you know, having a, enjoying a food life. Right. Hey, it's a simple pleasure. You know, uh, that's something I used to remind the dietetic students. You know, it, don't forget with all this study on metabolism and, and all this stuff, it's a simple pleasure of life, you know. And I think our powerlifters. Uh, and don't get me wrong, off-season bodybuilders, not all of them are counting every calorie. You know, food is a simple pleasure, and uh, you can have a lot of fun with that for sure. Yeah, I often explain it to people as that we eat for homeostatic and also hedonic reasons. So homeostatic, right, to body composition, rebuilding, run your body. But we also eat food because a lot of times it just tastes good, and that's okay. That's not a, a bad thing in and of itself. That's right. That's right. You can't just look at it as fuel. Yeah, although it's an important fuel. So. Yep. 
Okay, guys. Well, thanks for joining us, Dr. Chaliva. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being on. Greatly appreciate it. That was awesome. Um, so my website is jasonkaliva.com. How do you, you spell that? Learn C-H-O-L-E-W-A. JasonKaliva.com. And you can learn a little more about what I do. Uh, There's a number of blogs and articles on there. And follow me on Facebook. My Facebook is Big Red Physical Performance. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) All right, fellas. Well, we'll be back uh, next week with, um, we'll have Phil back with us. And that's it. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.